Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Lord's Supper next weekend. Please be mindful of this as you go through your week and give attention to confession of sin. Um, and then I did want to take just a second to um, either remind you or, or tell you about for the first time a couple of uh, resources that our church has put out. Uh, we've got a couple of booklets uh, that are available for you to take and use. One of them is called The Basic Message of Christianity in 30 Minutes. Uh, this is designed to be used uh, by you as you are sharing the gospel uh, with people uh, in, in your life. And so this is one of those. You are have a relationship with somebody. You can hand this to them. And if they're willing to read for 30 minutes, it goes over the basic message of the gospel in the Bible. So we would love it if you would take some of those. Uh, we have heard some good reports coming back about it being useful. So bear that in mind. And then another one I told you about maybe a month ago, something like that. Uh, we're calling this one the membership booklet. Um, if you call this church your home, uh, please, we would like your family uh, to have at least a copy of this and to read through it. It's essentially the equivalent of about three sermons on what it means to be a part of a church family. So if you don't have one of these yet, please grab one. Um, and there are some of those available there. Romans chapter 11 now, I'm going to give just a, just a bit of introduction before we read, and we're going to, we're going to read uh, the whole chapter so that we gain a grasp of, of everything that's being said in the thought process here. When we start a chapter, I always think it's helpful uh, that we get an idea of what's happening in the whole thing. So, the main question that has been running through these three chapters of 9, 10, and 11 is... Uh, this question that arises from the gospel and understanding the world. And it is, what is God doing with Israel? Um, these early believers would have had confusion it, it, because, uh, you know, th th this whole thing, I, th I thought that the Jewish people were your chosen people and why are they rejecting Jesus I thought Israel was going to be saved and they're refusing salvation. And then what's going on that all of these Gentiles, these non-Jewish peoples are entering the kingdom. So what's going on with all of these things? And so 9, 10, and 11 have been addressing this question and the various, the various answers and aspects of it. Chapter 9 said, well, this has been ordained by God and he told us about it in the Old Testament. It's just that a lot of the passages were, were missed. And so there's a look at that. Chapter 10 gave the, uh, gave the explanation of Israel is rejecting Christ because they are choosing to do so. We ended with that statement that they have a stubborn, hard, and obstinate heart towards God. Well, a natural question that would arise after these answers that we've been given would be, well then, does that mean that God is done with the nation of Israel? So if, if he's choosing Gentiles and they're rejecting Jesus, does that mean that God says, that's it, no more? 
And that is the subject that comes up in chapter 11. And so we see the answer to that question is, is no. God is not done with that physical group of people. And there are some things that we need to see in the scripture about God's purposes. So in chapter 11, uh, look at verse 25 for a second there. This is the central idea verse. Uh, so in, in one sense, if you understand this verse, you understand the main idea of what's happening there. He says, for I do not want you brethren. Uh, so he would largely be referring to Gentiles there. I do not want you uh, Gentile brethren to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So let, let that sink in. There is a hardening that has come, but it is not absolute and it is not final. It will last until the Gentile elect are saved and brought into union with Christ, but there is a partial hardening that has now uh, come, but will not last forever. Let's go back to chapter 10. Verse 21, just I want to show you how that last truth leads into chapter 11. And then I'm going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to try to read it in such a way that it, you know, kind of helps make sense in things. So chapter 10, verse 21, please read along with me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking? It is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened just as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy... The branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. 
But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him again for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we ask, O oh Lord, that you will come and give us understanding. Lord, I pray that you will show this truth of your gospel so that when we see it, we understand it. And in understanding it, Lord, that it would bring the transformation that, that there's the possibility that it can. We desire this. Father, we pray that you will sanctify us, purify us, humble us, increase our gratitude. Lord, help us to be overwhelmed by this abundant grace that you've given that is, that is evident in this passage. And so, Lord, I pray that you will work these things. You will accomplish this. I ask God for any who are here today, either in this room or in the next one with the little ones that has not yet truly repented and placed their trust in Christ to be saved. God, I pray that today you would, you would draw them to yourself, give them eyes to see, make the truth come alive and be clear to them, O oh God. And please bless us, Lord, as we study this. Help me in the work here, O oh God. I need your spirit, need your grace. Help me to be faithful. Help me to be useful. And bless us, O oh God. We sit at your feet and say, glory be to your name. Please show us. We pray these things through the name of Christ. Amen. The prophet Elijah was devoted to the Lord with all of his heart. 
and that is a rare thing in any day, but especially in the dark days in which Elijah lived. We recognize that we have been living in some days getting darker. We are still nowhere near the days that Elijah lived in. Elijah lived in a day when the nation of Israel had been drifting and drifting further and further away from the Lord. And in the midst of this, as Israel would drift, God would send them prophets. The prophets would come and announce the message to repent and return to the Lord or judgment was one day going to come. God also sent a number of small judgments. Uh, for instance, in Elijah's day, uh, there was a three and a half year uh, season where it did not rain, creating a, a tremendous famine. That, by the way, is a small judgment. But still, even in the midst of those judgments and in the midst of the prophets preaching, the people continued to march into their darkness. Now, every day has its own sin that becomes the sexiest, the most popular. D do understand, in one sense, it all is the same. The sins of our day are the same as the sins of Elijah. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it just manifests itself in different ways. New packages, new names given to old ideas. In Elijah's day, the way that indulgence of the flesh uh, had been justified was through Baal worship. Baal being the most popular idol of the day. If you study Baal worship, you understand it's rated R and worse. It involved all kinds of indulgence of the flesh and such. It's just the way they justified what they were doing. But Baal worship had swept through the land and it was being promoted by the current king, Ahab, and then his even more wicked than he wife, Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel had actually gone through the land. They had uh, gotten popular opinion on their side. And then once they had uh, the people's approval, they went through the land and actually systematically murdered the prophets of the Lord. Those who worshiped God were recipients of ridicule, persecution, and even being hunted. But in the midst of that darkness, Elijah stood out as a, a man of light. God gave Elijah a task to fulfill, and there was one occasion in particular that God began a work that would eventually lead to a repentance, but it would take a while. He gave Elijah the task to go and challenge Ahab and the prophets of Baal. You remember the account? They gave the challenge of, meet me at Mount Carmel, and we will see who is truly God to be worshipped. So Elijah was able to convince Ahab and 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and multitudes of the people to join him at the top of Mount Carmel. Elijah spoke to the people. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then worship him. If Baal is God, then give him all your devotion and stop teetering between the two opinions. Choose one. And he suggested this challenge. Let's erect two altars, lay the wood, set the offering. We will not set fire. We will simply pray. I will pray to Yahweh. 
you pray to Baal. Whichever God answers in fire, he is the God worthy to be worshipped. The people agreed. Elijah even said, I'll give you the honors. You can go first. And so the prophets of Baal began to engage in their pagan practices. They danced. They chanted. They prayed. They asked. This went on for hours, and they were getting tired by the time late afternoon started to roll around. Uh, Elijah actually began to mock them. Dance harder. Yell louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's occupied. That was a Hebrew euphemism for um, maybe he's in the can. Yell louder. Maybe he'll answer. This infuriated the prophets of Baal, and so they did. They danced harder. They cried out louder. They cut themselves with lances until the blood flowed, until the uh, late afternoon wore on. And here's what the Bible says, but there was no voice. No one answered, and no one paid attention. And so Elijah called the people to gather around him, and in their sight, he repaired one of the altars to the Lord that they had destroyed previously. He laid it with 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and then he called for men to come and bring four pitchers of water and pour it on the offering and the wood, and so they did. And he said, do it again. So they did it a second time. He said, do it again. They did it a third time. The wood was now thoroughly soaked through. And then Elijah prayed out loud, out loud in the hearing of the people. He prayed, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God and that I am your servant. Answer, O Lord, answer, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God and you are turning their hearts back again. And as Elijah finished his prayer, fire fell from heaven and it consumed the offering. It was one of those supernatural events that occurred. And the people, when they saw it, they gasped, they fell on their faces and they began to uh, publicly confess, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And Elijah then called for the people to go and seize the prophets of Baal. And so the people went and grabbed them. They brought them down to the brook of Kishon and there Elijah put them to death. Now you read that and at that part, that's the point that I would think in my mind to say, and they all lived happily ever after, worshiping the Lord for the rest of their days. But that's not the world you live in. It's a complex world in men's hearts are rebellious and men do not act logically. Almost immediately, Elijah found out that Ahab and Jezebel were coming for him to kill him and Elijah could read the room and know the people will consent. The Jewish soldiers, they will follow the orders. The people will look the other way. This will happen. And so Elijah took off fleeing. He fled into the wilderness so deep that he was confident they wouldn't be able to find him and he threw himself on the ground and there he prayed and asked for God to take his life. Um, I find it strangely comforting how many of our Bible heroes got depressed to that point. You're, you're missing some very helpful things if you think they just walked around every day always encouraged. Quite a few of your Bible heroes were in despair. 
He cried out to God and asked for God to just take him out of this world, just let him go uh, into the next. God did not answer that prayer. God did in kindness send an angel and he gave Elijah some food to eat to strengthen him and then he instructed him to go to Mount Horeb and to meet him there. So Elijah journeys to Mount Horeb and he climbs the mountain and there uh, God comes to meet with Elijah. God reveals his power in rocks breaking and wind rushing. And then there was a calm. And in the calm, God met with Elijah and Elijah covered his face. And then God asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responded, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase. I don't understand, God. I have, I have devoted my life to striving for your name to be glorified. And I have known nothing but hardship. The people you sent me to preach to, they are wicked. God, they hate you. They have hunted down all of your prophets. They've killed every one of them. They have destroyed your altars. And now they're after me. God, I'm the only one left. If I die, that's it. Worshippers of the Lord are gone. There won't be any. And I think there's something to glean in that God does speak words that comforted and strengthened Elijah, but not by pandering to Elijah. God comforts his people, but you notice there's not any place in the Bible that God does so by letting people continue in their self-pity. God speaks to Elijah and he encourages him and strengthens him by giving him some more tasks to complete. He gave Elijah three tasks. First, go anoint Haziel king over Aram. Second, go anoint Jehu king over Israel. And third, Go anoint a, anoint a man named Elisha to be your replacement. But then he, he, he said this, Haziel, Jehu, and Elisha, they will make war on those who are leading the way in the worship of Baal. But, and then this next part of what he says is significant, but I have kept for myself 7,000 who have never put their knee to the dirt to give reference, reverence to that false god Baal. In other words, Elijah thought he was the only one left. Because he didn't know others, he thought he was the only one. And God says, you're not the only one left, Elijah. I have preserved for myself a remnant. Th though the majority has gone away, uh, for my glory, for my namesake, my name will be honored in the earth. I see to it. I have gone, I have pursued, I have worked, I have saved 7,000 who are mine. I keep for myself a remnant. In our passage here in Romans, Paul calls upon this account of Elijah in order to say that the same principle, the same principle that existed in Elijah's day of a remnant, that same principle is still the case now in the new covenant in regard to salvation. This is not an age where everyone loves the Lord. It is an age where the majority 
reject him. But God in mercy goes and pursues some. God has chosen to save a remnant. We cannot expect all. We cannot expect the majority to love God. It's also the case that God has not given the entirety of humanity over to destruction. He has chosen to save some. There is a remnant out of the earth that God saves for himself. And then specifically what this passage is addressing is though it is the case that there's a remnant out of the earth, this passage, chapter 11, is specifically addressing a remnant out of the nation of Israel. It's not all, it's not the majority, and it's not none. It is a remnant that God is saving for himself. The principle of the remnant still applies. It's a part of this world in a cursed age. As you look at chapter 11 as a whole, um, let me kind of tell you how the thought process and how it breaks down there in case you want to take notes, jot the outline in your Bible. I see five divisions throughout chapter 11. Uh, here they are. The first one, point one, verses one through 10, we see the truth that Israel is not rejected. Uh, secondly, in verses 11 to 16, that paragraph, we're shown that Israel's rejection of Christ has been God's occasion for extending grace to the Gentiles. Thirdly, in verses 17 to 24, we see the metaphor of the tree of Israel. Fourth, in verses 25 to 32, it is explained that there has been a partial hardening of the nation of Israel. And then lastly, one of the highlights of all of the Bible, verses 33 to 36 is a uh, beautiful uh, statement of doxology. Doxa, the Greek word for glory. It is a statement of worship and glory. So for this morning, what we're doing is going to consider this, this first point. And within this first point, Israel is not rejected in verses 1 through 10. Um, I see three simple divisions, three truths that are uh, taught there. I'll label them A, B, and C. It's my intention to get through A and then part of B today, and then in weeks ahead, we'll keep marching our way through. So if you are taking notes where we are, Israel is not rejected. And here's letter A. I'll tell you the subpoints as we go. God has not entirely or categorically cast Israel away. Uh, look at those first couple of verses again. So he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So if you're closely following the thought process, the question that is asked there at the beginning of chapter 11 is a, is a natural question that would arise. By the way, there has been a great deal of confusion throughout history on this very topic. And yes, it does affect how you see the Bible, how you understand the gospel throughout the years been all kinds of confusions about what is God doing with Israel? What is God doing with the nations? There have been those that have just completely obsessed themselves over Israel, frantically searching their genealogies, trying to find some Jewish ancestor because they think it will make them holy or special or something. On the other hand, there have been those who have thought they were being biblical. They were not, but thought they were being biblical to have a disgust for the nation of Israel. 
because of things like the end of chapter 10 in seeing that Israel has had a stubborn and obstinate heart towards God. They thought they were agreeing with God by hating the nation. Both of those are uh, error, um, grievous error. What we're shown here is, is what God is doing amongst this nation. It helps us understand what God is doing amongst the, the nations of the earth to see this. And so some have thought that because of everything that has happened, God chose them for special things in the Old Testament. They rejected their Messiah. And now God is saving a bunch of Gentiles. There have been many who have thought, okay, I guess this means God is done with them. He's cast them away. He's fed up. He's had enough. That's it. Now God is leaving them and moving on to the other nations of the earth, which would mean two things. So if, if somebody has the idea that God has rejected Israel, it would mean two things. Number one, it would mean that God is not choosing any of them for salvation. And number two, it would mean that God's not going to do anything special or gracious among them in the future. And both of those are false. This chapter addresses both of those wrong ideas, those questions. Paul says, I too am an Israelite, of the des a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's point is that if God had entirely rejected Israel, if God had just categorically said, I'm done with them, then he wouldn't be saving any of them. Paul says, I'm an Israelite. I'm of this bloodline. God has not rejected his people. Do you see that language? His people. What does that show? There is still a way in which they are his people. We need to understand what that means. But there's still a way that they are his people. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Um, Psalm 94, 14, for the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Uh, sometime in the future, we'll look at Jeremiah 33. God says some similar things in that passage. And we understand that there is a way in which, you know, because some of the confusion here, it was introduced to us in chapter nine, we were shown the difference between Israel according to the flesh and Israel according to the spirit. The children of the flesh and the children of the promise. And you got to bear this in your mind, this difference. And remember this, what we were taught in chapter nine as we go through this. There is, we can refer to Israel as the nation, the physical people, the bloodline coming from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then chapter 9 introduced this category to us of spiritual Israel. Israel according uh, to, to, to the children of promise, those who are in Christ. I believe that refers to everyone from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who are in Christ are included in that spiritual Israel. So you got to bear in mind as we're thinking through this that there's a double thing here. We also see that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are these parallels. God did something special in the Old Testament in an earthly way. And it's picturing something that God does in the New Testament in an eternal and spiritual way. We'll, we'll see some of those things. But this chapter, chapter 11, is addressing physical Israel, the nation, the people group, the bloodline. It's asking the question, is he done with them? Is he moving on? And the answer is no. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew.
Um, you remember this word for no, for new, uh, from back in chapter 8. And if you remember back that far, one of the things that we saw is that this word for no does not mean that God has looked into the future and he sees what's going to happen like a fortune teller. No, um, God writes history. He doesn't watch history. God ordains what comes to pass. He is not merely an observer who is trying to do his best as history rolls along. Okay, um, This foreknowledge is uh, along the way. I think at that point I used this illustration, the same I'll use today. Uh, my daughter Emma uh, writes novels. Okay, What 13-year-old does that? She writes novels. 14, right? Yes, thank you. Okay, <laughs> writes, writes novels. And in her mind, she creates these characters. She creates them with personalities and backstories and their height and weight and hair color. She creates them and then she writes them into her story. We have to understand that God has done this for mankind. God has created people by his design. And part of that design was that in his mind, he knew he set his love on children that he created to be adopted and saved. That is foreknowledge. It's not fortune telling. It is no in that way that the Bible often uses the word no. The Bible often uses the word no in an intimate kind of way to know something deeply. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. That is intimate knowing. God foreknew. But here's where we have to understand a distinction. And it goes back to Old Testament and New Testament. An earthly type an eternal and spiritual anti-type. Think of these parallels. Things like, in the Old Testament, God saved his people from Egypt. Earthly kind of saving. In the New Testament, God saves his people from their sins, eternal and spiritual. Do you see the parallels there? So in the Old Testament, when it referred to Israel as his people, we have to know that this was in an earthly kind of sense and that the referring to his people as those who are in Christ in the New Testament, we are talking about a spiritual and eternal belonging to God. God for knowing and choosing the nation of Israel does not mean that every single individual soul who is a part of that nation is in Christ, has eternal life. That's not what it means that they are foreknown and chosen. Now, in the new covenant, what has been revealed, which we studied in chapter nine, God has foreknown, God has chosen a people to save. That is exactly what it means. But you gotta understand, when we go from this Old Testament to New Testament type and anti-type, it's not a one-to-one. -one. There's a picture in something smaller, temporary, and earthly, preaching something bigger and glorious. So what does it mean that Israel has been foreknown and chosen by God. What it means is that the nation of Israel, well, we've seen these things back in chapter three in the beginning of chapter nine. What it means is that God chose them to give them his scriptures, enter into covenants, give promises, special grace, and use them 
as a platform to make God's glory known to the rest of the world. But it does not mean that every single individual person born from the family has eternal life just because they were born from a family. God for knowing and choosing them was for some special purposes. So are there uh, those among them who have been saved? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that all of them Okay, And so we have to see this parallel and not get confused. It's common to rattle off the statement that the Jews are God's chosen people. That is biblical language. But we do need to know what we mean by that, what the Bible means by that. What did he choose them for? Okay, well, back in chapter 9, if you look there, um, uh, chapter 9, if you find verse uh, 3, I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ. God gave them his scriptures. God entered into covenants. God gave them promises. He gave them special grace that the other nations did not get, but that does not mean that that every one of them were saved. And so um, spiritual Israel, the Jews according to the promise are those individuals that God has saved. But chapter 11 is addressing physical Israel according to the flesh. And so the, the, the quick answer there is no. God has not categorically rejected Israel. All right, well, what is he doing? Letter B, he has saved a remnant. He has and continues to save a remnant. Start in verse two there again, and look how we see this. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Watch this. Verse 5, here's the parallel. New Testament parallel. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Consider several parts of what he says there. One is God says, I did this. God is the one who in his sovereignty has gone. It's not just happenstance that in Elijah's day, 7,000 didn't bow the knee to Baal. It's not just that 7,000 happened to choose that of their own accord with no help. And God saw that and thought, well, that's nice. And look, a nice round number, 7,000. I like that. That's not what happened, okay? By the way, when you're reading the Bible and you encounter a nice round number and there's a little voice that kind of thinks, man, that's kind of convenient. Uh, yeah, he chose the number, okay? God chose, I want to save 7,000. I want to go to 7,000. And God so worked in their hearts, so stirred faith, desire, worship within them that they committed, I'm not going to bow my knee to that fake idol. And so we see here the parallel it's used as a metaphor to say this, just as in this new covenant, God is pursuing for his own glory. He is pursuing a remnant out of the earth that he will save. And I say that so that we understand it, but chapter 11 is 
talking about a remnant from the nation of Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. We saw that back in chapter nine. God prophesied all along, this is the way it is. This is the way this is going to work. Part of what I'm telling you is this is a principle of this earth because of realities that exist. But I want you to think about that remnant, a, a, a remnant, a portion, a fraction. And the fraction is a small fraction. Have you ever thought about how many people lived in Israel in the days of Elijah? Well, we can't know with certainty, but about a century before that, some little over a century before that, David performed his census. Remember the one that he got in trouble for? David performed his census, and the census revealed that there were 800,000 men of fighting age and condition in Israel, 500,000 fighting men in Judah, and then the Levites were not counted. So they would have numbered surely in the tens of thousands, maybe closer to 100,000. So if we take kind of a, a rough idea there, that's 1.4 million fighting men. That's not the total population, that's just the military census. 1.4 million men. And in Elijah's day, only 7,000 did not bow to Baal. If you do the math on that, that's one half of 1% of the men. That is a small portion. That is a small fraction. God saved a remnant. And by the way, this isn't just a one-time kind of thing. You travel through the Bible and we see that it's an ongoing principle of this world. In the days of Noah, God sent judgment to the earth, but he saved one family out of all of the earth. And that was meant to be a picture of the gospel. When we talk about how these things, like the flood, is a picture of the gospel, um, it's one of the parts that sometimes I forget to even mention, the remnant part. You know, the principle there with the gospel, the picture is mankind has spit in the face of God, has rebelled against him, so God sends judgment that is deserved, but in mercy, God chooses to give a way for there to be deliverance. God chooses to save some. Believe God, get on the ark. But remember, one family, one out of all of the earth. Uh, you continue on, in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, God saved one family. Same principle. The people had rebelled against God, spit in his face, had raised high fist against God. God in a just and righteous sentence sent judgment to the earth. But before he did, he, he sent messengers to prepare a way for people to be saved. Get out of Sodom. Run. Flee the wrath to come. Some did not believe and they stayed and perished. Those who believed God were saved. It was a remnant. In the parable of the sower and the soils, there are four kinds of soils. Only one represents those who are in Christ. The hard soil, thorny soil, and rocky soil all represents those who at some point reject 
Christ. It's only the tilled soil that makes it. The principle of the remnant is a principle of this age because of some realities that exist. So think about it. Let, let me suggest some possible imaginary scenarios where it would not be a remnant who were saved. The remnant principle wouldn't exist. So for instance, if all the world were good, if this world were filled with good people, the remnant principle wouldn't exist. Why? Everybody would be fine. If everybody were good and righteous, there would have been no need for Jesus to come and die, the death for atonement and raise from the dead. Everybody would be fine. Uh, by the way, probably one of the most popular religious beliefs in our land, the idea that we're all fine combined with another one I'll mention here in just a second. Number two, but if, if we imagine, let's just say that this was a world filled with sinners, but sinners who were quite a bit better than what we are godlier, wiser, sinners, but sinners who had nice and virtuous kinds of hearts, who wanted God. If that were the case, then Jesus would have still needed to come and die the death of atonement, raised from the dead, and then when the message went out to the earth, what would good sinners, if I could say that paradox, what would good sinners, how would they respond to the message of the gospel? the nations would go running to Christ. Everybody would hear about this way to be right with God and they would go fleeing. So again, there wouldn't be a remnant. It would be everybody or a majority who ran to Christ. Thirdly, if the world were as it is, but God decided to give the race of men only justice, God would have been totally good if this is what he had decided to do. If God had decided that he wouldn't save any, he was under no obligation to do this. If God decided to just categorically give mankind over to destruction, there would be no remnant because there would be no one saved. Fourthly, if God didn't care about sin, if he just winked his eye like the big grandpa in the sky that we sometimes joke about and, you know, instead of, Instead of despising sin, God just talked about, uh, oh, you know, those kids and their shenanigans. You know, we're not going to call it sin. We're going to call it mischief. You know, if God's the big grandpa in the sky. He just doesn't really care. These kinds of things. Listen, the remnant principle wouldn't exist because there would be no wrath. There would be, there would be no judgment. We have to understand the, re the remnant principle exists because of who God is, because of the nature of mankind, and because of what this age under the curse is like. God is not like what modern man wants him to be. He's not a big grandpa in the sky who thinks that all the mischief of these little kids on the earth is funny. God is the majestic one, the glorious one who is holy, holy, holy. God's holiness Changes everything. When, when humans invent a God, they don't invent a holy God. They invent the Greek gods who sleep around, party, and drink just like the Greeks wanted to do. When men invent a God, they might name him Jesus, but that Jesus ain't holy.
The one true and living God is holy, holy, holy. And because of his holiness, he hates evil. We are evil and God hates evil. We are sinners and God judges sin. We are lawbreakers and God is a righteous judge. His holiness means he will punish. But God is also merciful and gracious. If you show mercy to somebody, it means that you don't give them some punishment that they deserve. If you show grace to somebody, it means that you give them something better than what they do deserve. God is merciful and gracious. And so though his perfect holiness uh, demands that he punish sin and his heart wants to, his heart also has compassion, mercy, and grace. But his righteousness demands that any mercy he shows be done in a way that doesn't violate justice. Okay, so we've used the illustration before. If your family were murdered and the murderer were caught and brought to trial and that judge called what he did little mischief and shenanigans and let him off the hook without any punishment, you would know that is not a righteous judge. It is an unrighteous thing to do. We have to understand how all this fits together. God's perfect holiness, God's overflowing mercy and his upright righteousness and justice. How, how can all of that come together? If God's holiness demands that he punish sin, but he wants to show mercy, but his mercy can't violate justice, then how can all of that come together? Guys, this is part of the glory of the gospel. The answer to the dilemma is Christ. On the cross, Jesus took the righteous wrath of God onto himself. God fired the arrow. Jesus stepped in front, took the arrow into himself so God's holiness is intact. God's mercy has been exercised and justice has not been violated. But understand what all of this means for our subject here and the remnant. Why does the remnant principle exist? Because of the reality of this world. Not everybody is saved. The majority is not saved. And it's not that no one is saved. The reality of this world is that God has pursued a remnant. I was talking with Logan Hickey the other week and he was telling me about a teaching opportunity he just recently had and he was assigned the task to teach on angels and demons. And he said that one of the parts that he emphasized as he was teaching was to deeply consider that the fallen angels, the fallen angels did exactly what we did. The fallen angels rebelled against God, we sinned against God. But you, you understand, God has not offered salvation to the fallen angels. Jesus did not um, incarnate into an angelic form in order to go die a death of atonement for angels. There is no atonement. There is no substitute. There is no forgiveness. Listen to me, God is not mean, cruel, or unjust in doing that. To, to give crime what it deserves is the basic definition of justice. God has done nothing evil whatsoever, but there is no offer of mercy to the fallen angels. They are in misery now and the lake of fire is prepared for them. But what God has done for mankind 
is he sent Jesus, he died a death of atonement, raised from the dead, and there is the offer of salvation, and God is saving some. But to try and consider what, what it would be if God had simply given us justice, friends, th that kind of stuff ought to bring us to weep in gratitude and humility over what God has done. He did not have to, but in mercy, he is saving a remnant, a fraction who trust in him. Are you among them? Are you among them? To be among them, you must believe the gospel. Part of believing the gospel is believing the part where God tells you, you're not okay, you are unclean. If, if your heart just absolutely keeps insisting, I don't need this thing that you're talking about, I don't need to be saved, I'm a good person, you have, you have refused and rejected Christ because you do not believe his gospel. You must believe the gospel. You must place your faith and trust in Christ, not trusting you trust Christ and pray and ask him to save you. This truth has some pretty deep conclusions to draw from it. So last week I brought up something I'll, I'll bring up again here. Does it ever bother you that you have staked your hope, you have staked your reputation, you have built your life, your everything, your all on the message of the gospel and the world thinks you are an idiot for believing it. You are in a very small minority by believing the Bible, believing the gospel. Does that ever bother you? You know, uh, Joe Rogan here uh, recently pretty famously went on just an absolute 60 minute profanity laced tirade about what idiots we all are for believing the Bible. Does that, does that bother you? And I mean bother you to the point that it, it brings doubts that you're in a group that the world thinks you are an imbecile, that you actually believe these things. And if it bothers you, do you ever ask the question, why is it like this? That, that, that question has entered my mind. Why is it like this? You know, it, if, if, if the gospel's true, why don't the majority of the world believe this? The remnant principle is telling us why. That not everyone is saved, not the majority are saved, and not no one is saved because of some realities that exist. God has chosen to save a remnant. And there is a unique way that he is glorifying himself by that. There are other ways God's going to glorify his name at some other seasons of eternity. Okay? It's not always going to be like this. Christian, you're going to put your foot in a kingdom one day where it's not the remnant. You're going to put your foot in a kingdom one day and everybody agrees with you that the gospel is true. All of your neighbors are going to love Jesus. You're going to work side by side. You're going to sing. You're going to enjoy friendship with people, a community, and they all love Jesus. And every day you're going to gather around a table and you're going to eat and drink and rejoice and feast with people who love Jesus. It's not always going to be like it is now. But the now has a test Will you stand and be faithful to Christ when you are mocked as an idiot? 
That's a test. Will you join Elijah? Will you be one who stands and doesn't falter because the crowd's not with you? That's part of the point. You're giving God a unique kind of obedience and glory by the fact that you are an idiot in the eyes of the world, that you are mocked. You are a part of a remnant. If I'm speaking to you who are in Christ, if you're not, we're pleading with you, come to Christ. But if you are, you are in a remnant, but it won't always be like this. The, the day you want to be, it will come in the kingdom. The fact that it is only a remnant causes some to boast in their own hearts, thinking themselves greater than others, thinking there must be something special about me. Chapter 11 addressed that, remember? Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And what does he say? Do not be conceited, but fear. Christian, you are a part of a remnant, not because of anything good, wise, or godly in you. You are a part of a remnant because God said, I kept for myself a group who would hallow his name. Understanding the remnant should lead to humility and gratitude. Christian, exult in gratitude. Live in light of the fact that there is a remnant that is there. And if you have never specifically turned to Christ, we plead, we invite you. Believe the gospel. Trust in Christ. Pray and cry out to him. And if you want to talk to me about that before you leave, please find me. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your mercy in that you have come to us and saved us when we did not deserve it. Lord, help us to live in light of this. I pray, oh God, that we'll live in gratitude. I pray, oh God, that we will stand and not fall I pray, O oh Lord, that we'll make your gospel known and that you will save more. Please bless us as we dismiss. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVine. I-N-D, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.